Last week we noted that Paul begins uh, his letter to the Romans with a royal announcement that God's gospel, God's good news announces or unveils Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord of the world. So in a, a world swirling with the injustice of the empire in which Caesar declared himself as Lord, Paul declares this good news. And through the good news of Jesus, God's righteousness is revealed. God's covenant faithfulness, his restorative and saving justice is putting the world right. And as we'll discover in today's scripture, reading the world desperately needs to be put right. Our world is hopelessly caught up in rebellion against God. Romans 1 verses 18 through 2 verse 16. It's found on page 1747. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of humanity who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has had been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal people and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere person, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing the good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. 
first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who stand apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who stand under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place in the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Perhaps you know the popular comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin's a bratty kid with an overactive imagination who wants life his own way. And Hobbes is his real, only to him, tiger who shows loads of common sense. In one strip, Calvin's holding a bat and Hobbes tossing a ball in the middle of the living room. Or what used to be the living room. Furniture's upended, lamps have fallen on the floor broken, plants and dirt and books are scattered everywhere. And Calvin says, do you think God lets you plea bargain? And Hobbes wisely replies, I'd worry more about your mom. (laughs) What does God think of us? I mean, if moms or dads get angry about our hijinks, what about God? Will God let us off easy? God is rightly angry at sin. Our world is bent toward wrong. A friend of mine used to say the world's going to hell in a handbasket. The righteousness of God needs to be revealed because the news about the world is bad. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. God is rightly angry because the world isn't reflecting what it was made for. Worse, our world takes sin for granted. No, we don't get angry about sin. We've lost the sharp edge the word sin once had, both in society at large and in the Christian community. Someone once noted that today we tend to mumble about sin. We ignore it, or trivialize it, or evade it, or make it the subject of late-night comedy. Too many from the highest office to the person on the street since there is nothing for which they need forgiveness. We've demoted sin. Rather than allow its single syllable to make its way into our everyday description of our humanness, we leave it to the edges of life. Too often sin only describes the wrong side of town or the most obvious sexual failings. It's commonplace for politicians and their supporters to devise and defend fraud. Actors may take happy satisfaction when another's performance is given a less than stellar review. Even parents and teachers guard against pointed discipline lest they damage a child's fragile ego. It seems our world has grown so accustomed to sin, it rarely flinches. But God does. God is angry. God has an eye on the truth of this world's situation. As one author put it, no other word gathers up in a single stitch the intrapsychic, the interpersonal, the moral, the ecological, the social, the cosmological, and the theological character of the brokenness of human life and all of creation. 
To be able to use the word sin is to be able to speak with honesty about who we are with and to each other. God's wrath is being revealed because humanity is caught up in rebellion. Rebellion against its creator. The world suppresses the truth through godlessness and wickedness. In Paul's view, sin isn't just doing something that breaks a certain law. No, the world is caught up in ungodliness and injustice. Godlessness or ungodliness is what happens as a result of humanity's failure to worship, to honor, to thank God. It's the failure to recognize, as Paul points out, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature. It's the failure to recognize God as the creator of all things. And wickedness or injustice is what follows in the wake of such failure. Humanity not only fails to worship God as God, but the ripple effect is that all of human life and society get out of joint. It's the dissolution of that webbing together of God, humans, and all creation, injustice, fulfillment, and delight, so that everything needs to be put right. And the result is, Paul says, truth gets relegated to the scrap heap. The truth about God and humanity and God's good creation becomes a casualty of human rebellion against God. Paul says we suppress the truth. We detain the truth. We don't allow it to run free, resulting in a whole creation, exaltation of God the Creator. We keep such truth under wraps. And so God's wrath is revealed. Actually, God is obliged to get angry. I mean, if God doesn't sort the world out, God is not a good God. We expect God to sort out evil from the good. Part of God's covenant faithfulness is to react with extreme hostility against all the sinfulness that corrupts or defaces God's creation. And the wrath of God is aimed at all of us. We're all afflicted. None of us escapes. None of us gets away. We're all guilty of a character-twisting idolatry. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. The movie Grand Canyon reveals the racial and class-imposed chasms that separate a, a a diverse group of people who live in the same community. Mac, uh, an immigration lawyer, is leaving a Lakers baseball, basketball game, and he breaks away from a traffic jam in an attempt to bypass it. And he soon finds himself driving along streets that seem progressively darker and more deserted. And then his expensive car stalls, and he finds himself abandoned on one of these streets, the, the kind of street guarded by youth who walk with a swagger and favor expensive cars and guns. Mac makes a panic call for a tow truck. However, the truck doesn't come in time. Before it arrives, five of these streetwise thugs surround Mac's car. They threaten him. 
They're ready to inflict serious bodily harm. Just in time, the tow truck shows up, and Simon, an earnest, friendly guy, starts to hook up the disabled car. But the gangbangers protest. He's jeopardizing their meal ticket. So Simon takes the leader of the group aside, and he lays out what is a simple explanation of the mess of this world. Man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know this, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. We're created to worship, to love, to serve God the Creator. That's what healthy, fruitful human life looks like. But there's a problem. We know God. We have a sense of God's power and deity, but our thinking has become futile. Our foolish hearts are darkened. Distorted thinking, darkened hearts. Our thinking is off. Our minds find no streams of gratitude. We cannot think ourselves into the right answers about life. Our God-given intellect is warped. Instead of using our minds to work for creative endeavors that benefit many, we use them to plot an advantage for ourselves. Instead of using our minds to help citizens and nations flourish, we think of ways to control the opposition, to keep others in the dark, to grab power for ourselves. Instead of using our minds to discover ways the disadvantaged can have a leg up, we exert energy toward lining our own pockets. Not only is our thinking bent, Our hearts are shrouded in darkness. The light of life that moves us toward the love of God and neighbor gets darkened by our rebellious attitudes. Like a tree that rots from the inside out, we may look fine on the outside, but at the root we're rotten. Disease invades the whole system. We may look normal. We may look fine on the outside. We may deceive many people, even those who are closest to us we've already contracted a deadly disease. We're all afflicted. We can't lay blame on some exceptionally wicked people out there. The whole human race is guilty. We are guilty. We suppress the truth about God, distorting our minds and darkening our hearts. Our basic failure is we are captured by idols. We fail to let God be God. We fail to honor and celebrate God, to acknowledge God's power in and over the world. We have fallen prey to idolatry. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Warped in mind and heart, we try to convince ourselves that the power of sin isn't that bad in our lives. In his book on sin, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, Neil Plantinga says... Self-deception is a shadowy phenomenon by which we pull the wool over some part of our own psyche. We put a move on ourselves. We deny, suppress, or minimize what we know to be true. We assert, adorn, and elevate what we know to be false. To the extent that we are self-deceived, we occupy a twilight zone in which we make up reality as we go along. A twilight zone in which the shortest distance between two points is a labyrinth. 
We're called to a certain humility. Let God be God. Paul says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Our foundational sin is the sin of idolatry. We have divided hearts. Like the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, we've created our own golden calves. Reformer John Calvin has said, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. We make a God out of whatever we can cling to. Pastor Tim Keller notes that our idolatry happens whenever we make things, even good things, into ultimate things. Loved by God's unconquerable love, we make a bed for other loves. We center our lives around our spouses or partners, around our children, around our work, around our bank accounts, around our pleasure, around noble causes, even around our life and religion. When we worship God in whose image we're made, we reflect God's image more brightly and we become more fully human. But when we worship something other than the living God, you want to know if you are, just look at your checkbook, your calendar, or what makes you happy. When we worship something other than the living God, worship something that's merely a created object subject to decay and death, then we diminish our image-bearing brightness. We lose our essential humanness. Again, notice the repeated refrain Paul uses to indicate the depth of our depravity. God gave them over. God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. God gave them over to shameful lusts. God gave them over to a depraved mind. God's wrath gives us over to wickedness. When we put our own God or sin in place of the God that has been revealed to us, God reacts by handing us over to the consequences of our choice. I mean, we would be mistaken if we only focus on what Paul says in these verses about homosexual behavior. Look at verses 29 to 31. Anything from this list in your life, gossip, jealousy, pride, lust, disobey your parents, fail to show love or show mercy, yeah, we're there. No different than anyone who exchanges natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Anytime we turn away from true knowledge of God, we cut ourselves off from an accurate understanding of the world and our place in it. Uncle Andrew is a character in C.S. Lewis's story, The Magician's Nephew. In the story, Aslan creates Narnia through a song. The creation song reveals the majesty and glory of Aslan. It's a call for the whole creation, for everyone to worship. But the song made Uncle Andrew think and feel things he didn't want to think and feel. So he resisted hearing it. After all, the singer was only a lion, thought Uncle Andrew. He tried his hardest to believe that the lion couldn't sing. He was only roaring like a lion. And the longer the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew worked to block out the thought that the lion was singing. Uncle Andrew made himself stupider than he was. 
And finally, Uncle Andrew got to the point he could only hear a roaring lion. He could not hear Aslan's song of creation, even if he wanted to. One day, Aslan called out, Narnia, awake! But Uncle Andrew didn't hear any words. He only heard a growl. And when the whole creation of beasts replied in chorus to Aslan's invitation, when they worshipped and praised and honored their creator, Uncle Andrew only heard barking and baying and howling. He proved the point that C.S. Lewis made elsewhere. There are in the end only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. The scariest part of our idolatry is God saying, well, if that's what you want, if those are the choices you really want to make, if that's what's most important to you, I'll let you have it. God gives us over. When we ignore God, turn away from God, or simply get obsessed with ourselves and our desires, God will turn us over to the God of our own making. And like fools, we'll be captivated by the created instead of the creator. No matter how good that created thing is. In the end, God will finally judge. God will sort out the whole business. Whatever spoiled will be renewed from top to bottom. All of this will be in the day to come. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, says Paul, as my gospel declares. The Psalms, the prophets point us toward that day when God will judge. The day sometimes called the day of God's wrath. But first... Paul recalls God's kindness. He notes that when we pass judgment on others, we're fooling ourselves. Such an attitude shows contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience. See, God is kind. Not indulgent, grandparent kind. No, God cares and understands. God genuinely tries to move us forward so that that we can be the best that we can be. God isn't some some nasty bully in the sky who needs to be bought off. God doesn't act in irrational and uncontrollable anger. That's us, not God. God will judge because we have offended his divine standards. But God's not capricious. God acts justly. If this were not the case, if God was ready to pounce on you for all your wrongdoing, we would have been blown off the planet long ago. God reveals his standards in his word, brought to life in Jesus Christ. God offers us a way forward, the opportunity to to turn to him in repentance and trust. God gives us the chance to have lives transformed. Unfortunately, our hearts are too often stubborn and unrepentant. And we'll find ourselves storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. If we persist in this idolatrous wickedness Paul has outlined, then despite God's patience, despite being offered every chance to turn back, we're asking for disaster. 
We cannot insist on rejecting God's love and expect the best for ourselves. True, every morally upright person does not do what Paul outlines in the end of chapter 1. But as someone once noted, the moral law is like a sheet of glass. If it's broken, it's broken. In fact, Paul surprises us. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. What we do matters. Perhaps we've imagined that Paul's doctrine of justification by faith, which we'll get to eventually in Romans, means God won't judge us by our works. Paul seems to show otherwise. Somehow, we're saved by faith, but we'll be judged by our works. Paul's concern is with Jews who had God's law. They have the Torah, the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai. This was to be the way of life for the people redeemed from Egypt. Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations, don't have the law. We're not talking about some generic moral law to which all humans are subject. Gentiles didn't have the law that God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai. But here's Paul's point. Having the law is not enough. Notice what Paul says. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. N.T. Wright explains, justification by faith tells us in the present where we stand with God. We are God's people. Our sins have been forgiven. But in the future, there will be a judgment. And that judgment will be based on the entire life a person has led. Just as Jesus notes in Matthew 24, We will be judged based on what we did for the least of these. Paul's saying that our future judgment will be in accordance with the works that we do in this life. In the present, we're justified. That is, we have this new status in Christ. We're vindicated. That's justification. We're declared to be in the right. But in the future, God will judge impartially. Jews will have no advantage simply because they have the law. N.T. Wright again notes, God will judge everyone according to where they're at, not according to where they're not. Those outside the law, Gentiles in other words, will be judged that way. Those inside, Jews, will be judged by the law they possess. What matters after all is doing the law, not just possessing it. Now I'll admit this may be puzzling. I don't know that I fully comprehend it. I'm hoping that we'll be able to sort this out as we proceed through Romans. But this much is true. Our world isn't in the hands of an unpredictable or fickle God. Yes, God will judge. But God doesn't play favorites. God will carry out true justice. And the whole world will see it and know it. The good news for us, living in a world where injustice often flourishes, is the comfort of knowing that our God in Jesus Christ will be our judge. Okay, this sermon feels like a downer. Wrath, sin, idolatry, judgment... 
Things are not the way they're supposed to be. But here's what Paul is getting at. God is right to reveal his wrath. God's anger against sin is just what we'd expect from a just God. But what we discovered today as we consider the nature and extent of our sin is the reason for the good news we uncovered last week. God's covenant faithfulness is revealed in the good news of Jesus Christ, the Lord of the world. God's covenant faithfulness brings wrath against ungodliness and injustice, rightfully so. But also, in turning to Him, in turning to Jesus Christ, the Lord of the world, We discover the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray together. Frankly, God, this is a this is probably one of those passages we just as soon wasn't in the Bible. It creates a a certain amount of discomfort in us. It challenges a lot of the way that we live. It challenges a lot of uh, our lifestyle. It challenges some of what we think and what is in our hearts. And it challenges us to take stock. Father, as we look at our lives... As we take inventory, would you help us to see those idols we've raised up? Would you help us to put them down so that we will honor and glorify and praise your holy name? In Jesus Christ, our Lord's name, we pray and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.